1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Looks like you're all there already. Hear what Scripture says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated, and we'll pray for our time. Dear Heavenly Father, would you please bless our time together in your word? We want your word to shape our minds, to strengthen our souls, and to guide our bodies. Please help us encourage one another with your word. Amen. So we read in the beginning of our passage that um, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed. The Thessalonians are currently uninformed on this topic, and that is not the state that Paul wants to, to leave them in. So he's going to inform them. And we here at MABC don't want any of you to be uninformed either. And whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're pursuing it or not, whether you welcome it or not, you are being informed all week long from all sorts of sources on all sorts of topics. And the problem with being uninformed is that you leave yourself open to being misinformed. You've heard the expression, nature abhors a vacuum. Well, if you are lacking information, the gap in knowledge quickly gets filled in with opinions and theories and misinformation and outright lies. So Paul can't leave the Thessalonians in this vulnerable state, especially not on such an important topic. What happens when we die? Is there any greater question? We may know what happens to our bodies, right? Our heart stops beating, our brain stops, other vital organs, including our kidneys and our liver, stop. All our body systems powered by these organs shut down as well. So they're no longer capable of carrying out the process that we understand as living. That's what happens to our body, to our mortal flesh. But is that all we are? We'll have to loop back to that question. But the central question about what happens when we die was obviously 
uh, of grave importance to the Thessalonians, as it is to every single human who has ever lived. But there is an additional layer here um, in light of the recent reception of the Thessalonians of the Word of God. Remember, the Thessalonians had received the good news of the gospel from Paul, but then Paul had to leave town in a hurry. And after his departure, as happens on any given day everywhere around the world, people started to die. We don't know anything about the circumstances of their death, but I mean, death happens. We accept that. And their response to the death of fellow believers was a concern. The Thessalonians were distraught. The way that they grieved indicated an area of great concern to Timothy and to Paul. They did not seem to grasp the full implications of the gospel on the death of the believer. The Thessalonians were despairing that those who died prior to Christ's return would miss out on the promises of the gospel that the dead would not be beneficiaries of or participants in the second coming of Christ. So Paul wants to correct their view, to fill in the gaps in their theology. That is broadly what Paul wants to address in our passage. That's what he is referring to in verse 13. He doesn't want them to be uninformed, to be ignorant about the glorious implications of the gospel on the dead. And this encourages me also on the matter of the ongoing discipleship of the Christian. I think, or I like to think at least, that we will continuously learn throughout our Christian lives that our discipleship will never be complete until Christ's return. And perhaps this morning, we can all learn something new also through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Paul tells them, and through them, he tells all Christians as Dave um, prayed earlier, it's okay to grieve, but not like the rest of the world, not like unbelievers. We should not grieve like those who have no hope. That's what we see in verse 13. So what does death mean to the unbeliever and to the Christian? Death is a, a certainty to all. We all will die. But contrary to common wisdom, death is not natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not part of God's ultimate perfect plan for humanity. But since the fall of man, since sin entered into the world through the serpent, through Adam's rebellion in Genesis 3, there is no escaping the darkness that falls on every single one of us in the end. Not just the wretched beggar, but also the mighty king. There is no escaping death at the end of life. Our bodies will shut down. The lights will go out. Dust will return to dust. This part, what happens to our bodies, happens to everyone, the believer and the unbeliever alike. But Paul is telling us that the response should not be the same for everyone. The Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica, should not respond to the death of the body in the same way as those who have no hope. The Christian should not respond to death in the same way as unbelievers. So the first thing I want to consider is how 
unbelievers treat death, how the world responds to death. This is such a deep divide between the world and the church. This is arguably the most tangible difference between the Christian and the secular, how we face death. So how does the world grieve? Perhaps some of you are familiar with this particular book. Uh, It's called The Monster at the End of This Book. It's obviously, as you can see, an important piece of literature. Um, It was very meaningful to me when I was much younger. It's a book that really captures the angst related to the inescapable passage of time, the unstoppable march towards the darkness, like so many pages being turned in a book that leads towards the inevitable, fearsome ending. It's a work by the philosopher Grover of Sesame Street. (laughs) You may be familiar with it. You see, at the beginning, Grover reads the title of the book that he's in, and he's struck with fear. So he pleads and begs on every page for the reader not to turn the next page, because each page leads towards the end of the book. And he knows there's a monster at the end of the book. Now, obviously, I'm trying to bring a little bit of a lighter tone here. Uh, The book is written in a way that brings uh, squeals of delight to young readers as they disobey Grover, and uh, they witness him getting more and more agitated. And of course, this is a very heavy topic, And the point is not to make light of grief. Rather than, it's to point out the emptiness and the futility of the world's brand of grief. The world copes with death very similarly to Grover. They protest and fight against every page they turn, every birthday they celebrate, every milestone they cross, every step that leads them closer to the monster at the end of their life. The world wants to stop turning pages at all costs. They invest heavily in every possible de-aging technology, potions and lotions and diets and exercise and drugs and vitamins, all designed to put off the inevitability of death. Or worse, to mask and pretend the inevitable isn't coming for them. To willfully delude themselves with plastic surgery and hair plugs and hair coloring and makeup and, let's face it, fashion choices that are meant for much younger people. The world preoccupies itself with hiding death and anything that reminds them of death. Western nations like Canada even go so far as hiding their seniors away. Canadians do not want any reminders of the aging process, of the march towards our final destination. And so what happens when someone steps across the threshold of death? The world is at a complete loss. They have no coping mechanism for this, nothing beyond misdirection and distraction. So funerals are now celebrations of life. There's no open caskets for the secular. Cremations are in, scatterings, notions of mishmashed spirituality, returning to the earth, spirits living on within us, memories that will last forever. They don't mean any of it. 
Memories that last forever. We can't remember the name of all eight of our great-grandparents. I mean, three generations and even the most basic piece of information about us is gone, just buried into the depths of oblivion. We are merely a vapor, a wisp of steam that is visible for a little while and then vanishes. So the world is at a complete loss for what to say to the grieving. It's painful. It's torturous to come up with something to say. Empty platitudes that no one believes. She's in a better place now. Nobody knows where. Everything's going to be all right. I mean, there's nothing to back up such an extravagant claim. Everything happens for a reason. No clue what that reason is. Because they have no hope. But these empty platitudes that unbelievers say to each other, they come from somewhere. You can think of them like phantom limb pains. You heard of this when someone has a limb amputated. They still feel like that limb is still there. Even though the world has cut Christianity out of their lives, they have rejected the hope of the gospel, they still feel the ghost of that hope because it was programmed into their bones. They are, after all, still images of God. Like a sea turtle who knows to push and pull himself to the ocean as soon as he is hatched on the beach. We all have the imprints of our God-given purpose woven into the sequencing of our DNA. We know there's more to life than this. The sea turtle hatchling knows there's more to life than the beach. And so he yearns for the ocean. But the problem is that the world overrides what they know with what they feel like a sea turtle convincing himself to stay on land. I mean, it's a hopeless endeavor. He's designed to swim. So our bodies lumber on the earth, engaged in this lifelong losing battle against gravity that never stops its relentless mission to pull us into the ground. But we are not merely our bodies. I'm not saying we're not our bodies. I'm saying that we are more than our bodies. Can we consider this question? It's going to have an application on the next few verses, so bear with me. The question is, what are we? If you take the secular world at their word and consider the materialist view, the atheist's position, from the people who like to say, trust the science. If you consider a world with no God, then we are nothing more than our physical bodies, merely clumps of cells like an organic computer. Chemical reactions happening within a grouping of flesh in the shape of a human. This dehumanizing line of thinking proves 
quite pervasive in our society and often to justify some of the most destructive behaviors. This is the only belief that can justify the abortion industry, for example. They justify the destruction of life because it is nothing more than a clump of cells. But this is actually disingenuous. People don't really believe this, even if it's sometimes convenient. People may find it romantic to quote Edvard Munch, for example, who says, from my rotting body, flowers shall grow, and I am in them, and that is eternity. I mean, it sounds beautiful, but I mean, it's no comfort at all. And it's not eternity either, is it? Flowers are even more ephemeral than we are. And so set aside the silly romanticism, and what are you left with? Would you really tell your dying mother that the emotion you feel for her is nothing more than oxytocin produced by the hypothalamus and secreted by the pituitary gland? I don't think so. The world may pretend that they're happy to be turned into fertilizer and that love is biochemically no different than eating a large amount of chocolate, but they don't actually believe it. And this lack of knowledge leaves them open to fall prey to a different lie, the lie of spiritualism. This is the modern-day equivalent, or somewhat similar at least, to Gnosticism of Paul's time. You've probably heard people claim this, that we are spiritual beings trapped in physical bodies. This is actually a, a pretty close to a quote um, from the inspirational yogi, Sadhguru. It's the basic teaching of yoga, put it that way. And I know, I mean, how damaging can the teaching of yoga be, right? It sounds pretty harmless. Well, yoga teaches that your body is a hindrance on your spiritual well-being, and so you do physical exercises to loosen the limitations of your body on who you really are, your spirit. The ultimate goal is spiritual inner peace, which is reached by overcoming your body's limitations on your spirit. And make no mistake, this teaching is destructive. Even if it seems harmless, and even as it becomes very influential in the Western mind these days, not just in yoga studios, spiritualism colors the modern notion that there can be a mismatch between our mind and our body. And it is your body that needs to be corrected to match your mind. Does that sound fam familiar to anyone? I mean, this is the lie of the transgender movement. It has its logical roots here. If you concede that your body is nothing more than a wasting container for your true self, then you have no basis to disagree when someone tries to convince you your daughter is actually a boy trapped in a girl's body. Eastern spiritualism is dangerous, as dehumanizing as materialism. If anyone truly buys into this belief, then the death of the body becomes a release of the spirit from its prison. And there is no need to grieve at all. Even more tragically, there's no need to live at all. And so it leads to modern-day notions that when life becomes too painful or difficult, then you're better off 
ending it. This is the lie at the root of the huge surge in Canada of what they call medical assistance and death. Let's call it what it is, it's suicide. It is now considered progressive and sophisticated to agree with Bill Maher, who says suicide is man's way of telling God, you can't fire me, I quit. The world's tragic rebelliousness and refusal to submit to God has reached the point in Canada where some are willing to kill themselves to hold on to the claim that they live life on their own terms. Don't let anyone go through with made without setting up some time to present the gospel. It has become so common, and it will continue to come up more and more with your neighbors. This is their very last chance. We must speak into this situation to ensure they are not uninformed. The truth is, we are neither purely physical beings nor are we spirits trapped in physical bodies. It's important to recognize the dangers that come with both of these false teachings. The world will happily and carelessly bounce back and forth between the two, confusing them in their own minds and ending up with illogical conclusions like words are literal violence because an attack against feelings is confused with a physical attack. You need at all times to be rooted in the underlying fundamental biblical truth, what theologists call dichotomy. We are both body and spirit. Theology matters. That is where these arguments are won and lost. Stand firm in the fundamental biblical truth. God has made you both physical and spiritual. At creation, God made man not merely by forming him out of dust, but also by breathing the breath of life into him. Both body and spirit are meant to be united in one person. Your natural state is when both your body and your spirit are united as one. That's what makes death so unnatural. It separates soul and body. It violates the unity of who you are. It cleaves you into two parts that have no business being separated. If you do not hold on to this biblical view, then you face a problem when it comes to death. Without this truth, there is no satisfying conclusion to life on earth. You're left with two options. Option one, when the body shuts down, that's it. Nothing more. It was all for naught. Absolutely meaningless. My life has no more meaning than that of the mold growing on the zucchini at the back of my fridge, which I won't be eating. Option two, your true self, your spirit, is released from its prison body, and you float around forever, no longer able to engage with the physical reality. Like a thought, no one's thinking, or a memory, no one can recollect. And quite honestly, I can't tell you which one of these two is more horrifying to me. So I'm begging you, if just don't go through life trying to keep these 
terrible convictions buried as deep as possible in your mind. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to join us here next time we hold a funeral for a Christian. And you can hear and see the difference. And why is that? What is the difference? Why do Christians grieve differently? Because we grieve with hope. While the world grieves in hopelessness, no longer being able to ignore their conviction, confronted by this abyss of darkness that is awaiting them, the Christian grieves with hope. We're going to unpack in a minute where that hope comes from, but don't miss the fact that the Christian still grieves. Life is precious. It's to be cherished. Death is a shocking enemy. It's loathsome. Death wrenches the spirit away from the body. It is an unnatural state. It's part of sin's curse on the world. It's evil. It's to be reviled. I hate death. Death cuts us off from people we love. We miss them. Their absence creates a void that we cannot fill. We miss their physical presence, their hugs, their smiles, holding their hands, sitting on their laps, their funny faces, their warmth. And we also miss their spirit, their kindness, their imagination, their creativity, their crazy theories, and their sense of humor. So we grieve, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. So where does that hope come from? It's in verse 14. Take a look at it. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's right, we grieve with hope because Christ died and that wasn't the end of him. He rose. And if he rose, then so shall we. Listen to how uh, Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read a couple. It's very um, detailed, but just verse 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection of the Christian. You see, if you believe that we are more than a cosmic accident, more than just the byproduct of rocks crashing around in an infinite void. If you believe we were created, that there is a God, then it would be hard to believe that God simply created us for no reason. Like a light he turns on just to turn off again. And so if God created us for a reason, it's easy to believe that he would want us to know that reason, our purpose that he would have communicated this to us somehow. And so it makes sense that God would have laid it all out in a book, in plain language. And we would be able to believe that book. And if God provided this vital information to us, our purpose, then there would be some kind of standard by which we are all meant to live our lives in order to accomplish that purpose. But then, if we're unable to accomplish that purpose on our own strength, as seems to be the case, 
then we have to come to terms with our own failure to meet that standard for which God created us. We have to see that the darkness that ails us comes from within us, not from the outside world. But then you also have to believe that such a God is not going to give up on you since, after all, you are his precious creation. And so you believe this book that tells you that he has, a ma- he has made a way to bring you back from that darkness into his light. And so it's easy for us to know deep in our bones that this was accomplished by his son, Jesus Christ, not only because it's documented in this book, but because it is logical and because it is convicting and it is transformative within our own flesh. So we know and we grasp that this rescue out of darkness into light was accomplished at great cost because of the magnitude of what is at play. And we know and we are grieved by the death that Christ submitted himself to for us. We know that he died. We get that his death was the cost. But there's no way that that could be the end. There's no way the God of the universe would have done all of this to give up here. Given everything we just outlined, death cannot be a defeat. And so the precious word of God, the Bible, is not only credible because of the specific documentation, the dating of the events, the naming of the witnesses, the corroborating accounts, and the internal testimony of this word, But it is convicting to our core because it provides the logical conclusion and the satisfying promise we all long to hear. The truth that quenches the greatest desire of our soul. That this is not all there is. That there is more to life. And so we can believe the promise has been sealed by the fact that Christ's death is not the end of the line. So nor shall our death be the final page in our story. No, the emptiness is no longer in our body because the emptiness is in the tomb where Christ's body was laid. Christ was raised from death, no longer to be found in that tomb. He revealed his resurrected body to those he loved in life and hundreds more to those who doubted and those who already believed. And this too is documented. And so we know and we have this assurance, this guarantee. We believe that because Christ rose, then so will we. That's it. That's verse 14. Since Jesus rose, so then in Jesus, God will raise the believers who have died. And this guarantee is sealed in the word of God. You see that in the beginning of verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. The guarantee is Christ's resurrection. And the certificate of guarantee is the Bible. So we Christians affirm with confidence that though sinless, Christ died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. He took on the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And he imputed his righteousness to us that we may be reconciled to our loving God. And we share the good news with all, that after three days, 
Christ was raised from the dead. He defeated death. His tomb is empty and his throne is filled. He reigns in power. And by the same power, we will be raised from the dead. Praise God. Paul wants this glorious truth to be known by all. The believers who have died will be raised. They'll be raised first. That was what was at the heart of the Thessalonians' despair. Does that mean only believers will be raised and unbelievers will remain in the ground? Well, no, that's not what Paul is saying. Eventually, not only believers, but in time, all will be raised. Just like Paul, I don't want anyone to be uninformed. In the end, we will all come face to face with the God of the universe to give an account for what we did with the precious gift of life. Not only the bodies of believers will be resurrected, the bodies of unbelievers also. There will be no excuse. No one will be able to say, well, I didn't know. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All need to be informed. Everyone needs to hear this. This isn't only for you and I. Do not keep this information from unbelievers. You cannot make them believe, but you can make them informed. Now, when Paul refers to those who have fallen asleep, I mean, he means those who have died, who have expired, breathed their last, kicked the bucket, who are pushing daisies, six feet under, deceased, passed on, passed away, late, fallen. I mean, you get the point. There are many ways to refer to death. Paul chooses fallen asleep. Why? Well, because of all the euphemisms for death, this one conveys the right expectation. When you fall asleep, you rise. When you die, you will be risen. See how Paul puts it in verse 14. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will bring the dead Christians back with Jesus. The hymn there refers to Jesus. You understand what Paul is saying. If I tell you I'm coming and I'm bringing someone with me, that person is with me, right? The dead Christian is with Christ until he returns. Dust returns to dust, but your spirit does not go into the ground. It also returns to its source. Stephen knew this. When Stephen was martyred, as he was being stoned to death in Acts 7, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. While the body lays in the ground lifeless, the spirit of the departed Christian is received by our Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious hope that is. But that's just a foretaste, the starter for the hope that we have. When Christ returns, that's when it gets really glorious. Let's go through the sequence of the rapture of this marvelous, joyful, ceremonious arrival as Paul lays it out. Paul addresses the Thessalonians' main concern. They were distraught that the departed would not experience Christ's second coming. Paul tells them, not only will they experience it, they will be part of it. And as verse 15 puts it, whoever is alive at the time will be next. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And remember, he's bringing with him those who have previously died. Their spirit is already with them and they come down with him with a cry of command, with the voice 
of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's a spectacle like nothing we can imagine. There is clearly a delegation of Christ's angelic army accompanying him with commands being shouted by the high-ranking angel, the archangel, and trumpets being blasted to announce his arrival in splendor. The remainder of verse 16 says, and the dead Christians will rise first. So as the spirits of the dead descend with Christ, their bodies are raised to be reunited at last. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There's a lot going on here. Make sure you track with me. There is an amazing procession that goes out to meet Christ. Like when you see the notification that the plane of someone you love has landed, you don't wait at home for them. You can't sit still, so you rush to the airport, you run to the arrivals gate, and you greet them as they come off the plane. The bodies of the dead Christians are raised and eagerly rush to meet with their Lord. Christ the King returns in power and is met by his loyal subjects with great fanfare and cries of triumph. And so note that when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, we're not talking about anything gruesome here. What is being raised is not degraded or decomposed. In fact, what is raised is infinitely improved over what is buried. And that's not to insult our current bodies. To be clear, our bodies are not evil. A couple of clarifications. When the Bible talks about our flesh being evil, it's referring to our humanity our fleshly desires, our sinful nature, not our bodies. The Bible tells us that our bodies are a temple, not, not like a bodybuilder says his body is a temple, by which means he, he means he worships his body. No, a literal temple, because it is the dwelling place of God the Spirit. He indwells our body, so do not despise your body, however imperfect, limited, lumpy or sinuous, however broken down or disabled, your body is you. It is who you are. It is beautiful because it is who God made you to be. We know it's perishable. It has a clock on it that is counting down until it will be sown into the ground, but then it will be raised imperishable, fully restored and eternal. That is what is being raised. Paul covers in a lot more detail in 1 Corinthians 15, if you're interested. But back to our grand arrival. What's next? All who are alive also receive their eternal bodies and they're lifted up, snatched up. This is where we get the notion of the rapture from. Raptured into this glorious whirlwind with the resurrected and all meet up and join up Christ in his cloud of glory. The reunification of the bodies and the spirits, the dead and the living, occurs in the air with Christ, never to be wrenched apart again, never to leave Christ again. See that? At the end of verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. What a tremendous promise. What a glorious hope that is. And so our passage concludes with verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, I mean, what more can we say at this point? This is the hope of the world. This is the end of all troubles and angst and hurt and disability and pain 
and sorrow. This is the end of death. This is what our hope is anchored in. This is what we share with the grieving so they may grieve with hope. And don't miss Paul's point here. He did not write this letter for any reason other than to inform you and encourage you. Don't dissect his words for the purpose of calculating the timing or to win an argument about whether this is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-tribulation. That would be a misuse of this particular passage. It is intended for the tender pastoral care to the grieving. So hold on tight to this hope. This hope is inseparable from your faith. If Christ was raised, then so will you be. Of course, until then, we still grieve. Death wrenches our loved ones from us, separates us completely. We miss the departed. We live in fellowship, in love. So the loss hurts our spirits and our bodies. But there is a reunion coming, and it is going to be a glorious reunion. The date is set, even if we don't know when, even if it is a mystery. We have absolute confidence it is coming. So don't delay, get ready to receive Christ. Because the way to life is through death, since the tomb is empty. Because Christ is raised from the dead in power and in glory. So every page we turn, every event we mark, every day and hour and moment that goes by brings us a little bit closer to this promise being fulfilled. So greet every new day with that hope in your heart. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this hope like an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Let us not depart from it. Lord, let not the grief of this world overcome the hope of the world to come. And may you hasten the day of the return in power of your glorious Son, in whose name we pray now. Amen.